Welcome to Thinking Like a Lawyer with your hosts, Ellie Mistal and Joe Patrice, talking about legal news and pop culture, all while thinking like a lawyer, here on Legal Talk Network. Hello, welcome to another edition of Thinking Like a Lawyer. I'm Joe Patrice from Above the Law, and with me, also of Above the Law, Ellie Mistal. I am drinking coffee at work that was brewed at work like I am an employee of a real company. Wow. It's amazing how standards in this kind of new Lochner era have fallen so far that having coffee at work is your definition of being a real employee. I have been campaigning for this goddamn coffee machine for eight years, and it finally happened. And I know a lot of people in my office are going to say, it has nothing to do with you, Ellie. It was actually people that the boss likes that got the coffee maker. I don't care. I tried for eight years to get this coffee maker. We have the coffee maker. I am drinking coffee. In the Trump era, this counts as a win for me. Okay, cool. So that's not what I'm pissed about today. Do you want to hear what I'm pissed about today? Oh, I'm sure we do. Okay, so I am a very good person, turns out. I've heard. And so I Mostly have, from you. <laughs> and so I have signed, and my mom, I have signed up to fly my own ass out to Indiana, where I have family, to help staff the voter protection hotline out in Indiana. Indiana is kind of a battleground state this year. Joe Donnelly is trying to, he's a Democrat trying to keep a seat in a red state. I've got family in Indiana, so I have a place to stay. So I'm going to help staff the voter protection hotline, which, you know, is my kind of good deed for the election cycle. However, that means that I will not be here in New York to vote on election day. Now, it doesn't really matter. My district is not hotly contested in any way. However, I still want to, you know, vote. But I have to figure out how to vote absentee now because I live in a state that has no early voting. Yeah. And this is this is a larger point here, right? Because as much as we want to complain about how conservatives and Republicans suppress voting rights, and they do, and they're horrible about it, when the Democrats are in charge, they do nothing to ameliorate these problems. New York State has been controlled by a liberal or a moderate conservative since, like, DeWitt Clinton, all right? <laughs> and yet we still don't have the kind of open-ended voting laws that would become a truly progressive state. We don't have early voting. We don't have same-day registration. Yeah. We still have closed primaries. This is a state controlled generally by left-of-center people. But this is also a state that was a pre-clearance jurisdiction, well, certain, neighbor, certain areas of it in particular in New York City, was a preclearance jurisdiction before Justice Roberts informed all of us that racism was over. Exactly. Yeah. But that's my point. Like, the Democrats here have actually been somewhat problematic about voting rights for decades and decades, so much so that on a bill that basically said the South is racist, they threw in New York City. Yes, exactly, right? Yeah. The larger point here is that when people overcome the hurdles placed in front of them to vote and vote in Democrats. Democrats have a responsibility to make voting easier for people in the next election cycle. And it's a responsibility that the Democratic Party consistently fails at. Well, certainly the Democratic Party machine of New York, which I don't know. You're using kind of liberally the idea that that's Democrats because there's been a lot of problems. I'm not aware of places yeah. west yeah. of the Hudson. That's fair. Cool. So that's what's grinding my gears today. I think that's fair. I have to figure out how to absentee vote. Yeah. Like I'm like I'm a college student still. 
there are a lot of resources available for you to do that, actually. So I mean, I'm literate, so I'll figure it right. out. I mean, yeah, I mean, they, the New York um, Bureau of Elections actually has like a thing, a, a form that you go to. And, I mean, look, my yeah. look, my mom was born in 1950 in Mississippi. She's not she's not here for my complaints about how difficult it is to vote. Fair enough. <laughs> All right. Well, you're ready to uh, change the conversation. Yes. Excellent. So. Uh, Today, we are joined by Professor Melissa Murray from NYU, which is, uh, you know, a good school. I'm going to say the best. Yeah, uh, it's, uh, you You <laughs> didn't get into Columbia? Is that how? No, I that? got into Columbia. <laughs> I chose NYU. So we're joined, we're going to talk a little bit about what's going on uh, with the world and campuses post-Kavanaugh. So welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Professor Murray, I just want to start in by kind of taking the temperature on campus. We had a report on Above the Law a little while ago about how students were, you know, walking out in response to the uh, Kavanaugh ascension, I guess you could call it. Um, we know there's been a lot of unrest at Yale in particular, um, where Kavanaugh went to school. There's been some unrest at Harvard Law School, uh, where Kavanaugh taught until very recently. From your perspective, kind of on the ground, actually talking to students, like, what's the temperature on campus? Well, I think all of the things that you mentioned are correct. I think things have been a little pitched on the different law school campuses. Um, I can speak for NYU, where there was a student walkout um, last week. There were also, I think, calls um, for the administration to rebuke um, professors who had made statements in favor of Judge Kavanaugh and um, sort of discrediting Christine Blasey Ford. Um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of stuff going on right now. I think there was always a little bit of um, anxiety that sort of was residual anxiety from the Trump election. I certainly saw a lot of that. When Trump was elected, I was serving as the interim dean of Berkeley Law, and there was certainly a lot of student anxiety, and that only increased with the travel ban. And as many of the different Trump administration policies rolled out. This, I think, was really different for law students because this particular confirmation battle was so contentious and um, so of the moment, um, incorporating these aspects of the Me Too movement, questions about sexual assault and sexual consent, that I really think it left law students kind of reeling and a little bit um, anxious about the whole issue of the rule of law and sort of, you know, questioning why they were in law school, what they're going to do when they get out of law school, and, and what is the point of this enterprise in the first place? Yes. That's kind of perfectly tees up my next question is, how sticky do you think this unrest is going to be? Because I I at least have the feeling that, like, this is this is all nice in terms of kind of low-level student activism, you know, but when Jones Day comes to campus offering hundred and eighty five thousand dollar a year jobs, some of this unrest will will dissipate. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, let's just be really clear. Students today have a particular set of pressures that I think are unprecedented, even for people of our generation, Ellie, who, you know, attended law school 15 years ago. Um, law school is expensive 15 years ago. It's even more expensive now. And so I, I can understand why students um, may feel the pressure to sort of sublimate whatever public interests or, you know, public-minded goals they have in the short term for their long-term financial health. I mean, law school loans are real and they can be really crippling, especially if you're a first-generation law student. So I would never condemn anyone for making the choice to go to Jones Day or any other law firm. You know, I worked at three law firms during law school because I was paying for it myself. But I do think that 
there are lots of ways that students are expressing vocally and um, in their actions, their own anxiety about this particular moment. And I don't think that will dissipate even if they do decide to take up a job in big law or to do the more traditional things that we've seen people do, go to clerkships or go to public interest. Um, I, I think this is sort of a galvanizing moment for this millennial generation, at least for those in law school. And I don't think it's something that they will forget. And I think it's something that will inform the way they engage with the legal system and the political process going forward. Do you think there there is a legitimate worry about any of these kind of civil unrest or any kind of protest statement coming back to bite students um, when they apply for jobs? You know, my sense is that, you know, unless you're kind of standing on top of police cars shooting bullets up into the sky, that most employers are not going to really care um, if you went down to Washington, D.C. wearing a knitted pussy hat, right? Like, I think that most people will let that go. Do you have a sense that employers are are kind of watching to, I don't even know what the word would be, to blacklist people who are participating in, in protests? So I don't have a terrific ear to the ground in terms of what's going on in big law practice. You know, my husband is a partner at a law firm. He's not trying to blacklist anyone's, but you know, maybe he's anomalous. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> it, it strikes me as, you know, perhaps beyond the pale to think that there is someone at a law firm making a list of students who are agitating or otherwise participating in the political process right now. And, and I think, as you say, going to one of the women's marches would not be seen as sort of excessive. I think a lot of students are doing sort of the things that we did. I mean, I remember in law school, I was one of the students who protested the lack of women of color at, on the tenure track at Yale. You know, I, I don't think it stymied me in my career. Maybe it has, I don't know. But, you know, I've certainly <laughs> been relatively successful in my career, even in spite of, you know, my, that particular effort to make my voice heard. Um, you know, I, I think... There will certainly be some positions, um, especially if you want to work in government and maybe with this administration, where vocal and persistent um, calls and protests will be met with a dim view. But I think you know that would be the case in almost any administration, right? I mean, like we, students have such a broad digital footprint. And employers can see so much of their lives because of what they're doing on social media or what's available on the internet that, you know, it's just very hard to kind of sequester your personal life from your professional life. So I think most students, especially law students who are already a quite risk averse group, are already, you know, sort of thinking about what kind of public face are they putting forward. One thing that's come up a lot over the last couple of years now and been certainly supercharged by this administration is more administrations making statements about how protests, they, they don't like protests, people should be more civil, people should, you know, sit and just listen to speakers who are invited to campus. There's kind of, and Sessions went to Georgetown and more or less said that he wanted to turn the FBI loose on people who heckled. Um, it, it, do you sense that campuses, in, in addition to like keeping one's digital footprint good for work, do you think maybe the there's a trend to extend what is and is not acceptable as a protest in a way that is an intended to stifle people. So I, I think this administration seems especially concerned with civility. Um, I think it's a pretty thin notion of civility because it only extends in one direction and certainly no one is 
shutting off the president's Twitter when it veers into uncivil territory. But, you know, I had a firsthand look at what protests look like and what student agitation toward particular speakers might look like when I was at Berkeley, where I spent 13 years of my career, a year and a half of it as the interim dean. And, you know, I truly believe that we need a marketplace of ideas. I believe that those ideas should be diverse and that we should have speakers from across the political spectrum. I also believe that students have the right and indeed we should respect that right to voice their objections to particular speakers. And as long as it's done in a way that doesn't cause harm and isn't unduly disruptive. I mean, I don't believe in a heckler's veto. And I do believe that we can exchange these ideas in a way that makes clear our objections. I personally do believe in the heckler's veto. I mean, if you can, <laughs> if you've got the voice for it, I don't see why. Well, no, I'm no, but, but that's not what a heckler's. Yeah, that's right. not quite what explain they mean. That, explain that for the audience because yeah. that's important, actually. Oh, just like the, the heckler's veto being the idea that if a heckler of the government agency or school or whatever saying we're not letting someone speak because we're afraid someone yeah. might show up, that that. Yeah sort of thing, which is different than just people heckling, which I feel as though Sessions kind of has pushed the morphed those two in a way that's probably not accurate. Probably not accurate, probably not unprecedented. I mean, I think there's a lot of conflation of these terms, sort of these understandings of what constitutes civil discourse and civil disobedience. And again, I come back to like there's so much agitation from the administration about students speaking up, but yet very little being said about, you know, the president making statements about people who are voicing their truth or articulating their views. Yeah, it's important to emphasize because I, I do joke about it sometimes, but like people need to understand a heckler's veto is me calling up you know, Madison Square Garden and saying, if you play the game tonight, I'm going to blow up the arena, right? And then they can't play the game because they have to worry about actual threats of violence. As assuming the game is speech, which whatever. Right. I mean, it, it, for the Knicks, it's it, I mean, certainly not athletics, so it's <laughs> probably speech. If I show up at Madison Square Garden and I'm like, oh my God, Timmy Hardaway Jr., you should be fired, and I scream that for four quarters, that's not me trying to stop the game with my speech. That's just me... Uh, right getting my money's worth, quite frankly. Right. <laughs> so that's an important <laughs> distinction. And any of that, so uh, Professor Murray, you, you've alluded to this a couple of times. Joe uh, is a proud graduate of NYU. You've now been at NYU for a while. You've been at Berkeley for a while. What's the difference? Because NYU has a reputation of being a very good school. Um, Berkeley has this reputation of being a very good school with crazy liberals running around eating kale and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> is there a character difference? Between kind of your your least common denominator Berkeley law student and your least common denominator East Coast student? So I've actually found NYU to be very familiar to me, at least the students. Um, I think they're very similar to the Berkeley students. Um, the Berkeley students, I think, are, for the most part, quite liberal, although not decidedly so. I mean, we have a lot of first-generation law students at Berkeley, um, a number of undocumented students, a number of disabled students. I mean, it really runs the range and they are not uniform in their views. And a lot of them have, you know, quite different views, although I will say, I think they are more to the left, but I think there's a range on the left and there's a range even on the far left. I mean, to be 
truly liberal at Berkeley might actually be to be, you know, Stalinist. I mean, there are students who are really <laughs> quite left of left at Berkeley. Um, I think NYU is very similar. Um, the students like at Berkeley are excellent and they tend to sort of cluster around liberal viewpoints. But, you know, there is a range and, you know, there are students who I think um, are more sort of to the center, more moderate, just as there were at Berkeley. So to me, teaching here doesn't feel altogether different. I mean, it actually feels incredibly familiar. There's still the same sense of public interest and public mindedness in the school, even though this is a private school and Berkeley was a public school. So for me, like my environment has changed, but sort of what I'm doing and the students that I'm working with, that hasn't changed much at all. When you say that, one of the things that jumps out to me is that if I was talking to a conservative who was listening to that, they would have taking your statement has been like, yes, and that's why the white man is actually discriminated against at law school. I mean, that's a that's a big thing in conservative kind of alt press. And I think trying to be as fair to that argument as I'm willing to be, one of the things that I think helps to explain the success of, say, the Federalist Society on campus, as opposed to the success of the uh, American Constitution Society on campus, is that conservative law students do feel like they're in a minority amongst their peers. The FedSoc also has like tons of Coke money. But beyond that, there there is that sense among the, the conservative student body at major law schools for the most part that they are in the minority and they are. What kinds of things do you think a university, a law school needs to do to make sure that the conservative minority at law schools are feeling, you know, I don't even know what the word, included or respected or whatever the word is for allowing them to have their completely wrong ass views, but feel safe while saying them. Right. So yeah, I think conservative students are probably in the minority at most law schools. I do think it's overstated how liberal the whole population of law students actually is. I mean, I I really do think that there is a range. Like, you know, today I taught Obergefell and put out the radical notion that I thought the decision was wrongly decided because I think marriage is overdetermined in our society. And, you know, I got lots of students who are like, okay, lady, let's not even talk about what's wrong with marriage. I mean, there are a lot of people who are very pro-marriage, which, you know, I think is a more conservative kind of viewpoint, like sort of uncritically accepting of marriage. And so I, I just would not say that they're all to the left to the point of, you know, like they're all leftist of, of a sort. I, I think there is much more of a range in all law schools. And in the same way, I think there's a lot of range in the conservative students. Um, you know, there will be some who are socially conservative, um, some whose conservatism is animated by religious principles. And then there are those who I think are more fiscal, small government conservatives and those who are like sort of really libertarian and thinking about things just like get the government out entirely, not just small government, but no government. And, you know, I think there's a range. And when we talk about liberal and conservative, it's really reductive. I also don't think that they're alone. I mean, I know that the rap on law schools is that all of the professors are really liberal and far to the left. And that really has not been my experience either at NYU or at Berkeley. Um, you know, I had some very prominent conservatives 
as colleagues at Berkeley and here at NYU as well. And, you know, these are not shrinking violets who retire to the sidelines chastened by the liberal majorities of law schools. They are out in front and they are vocal and they are challenging and they are a big part of the intellectual life of both of these law schools. And so, and I think there's a range of them. And so the idea that these students are alone, I mean, that strikes me as um, a little overstated. And I think it also understates the role that most professors, including myself, really try to do in making sure that both sides of an issue are properly ventilated in the classroom. Like, Anyone can read what I write and have a sense of what my priors are. But when I go into the classroom, I try really hard to challenge my own assumptions, to challenge the assumptions of my students, to make them take opposing viewpoints, and to really sort of get to the heart of both sides of a debate. Yeah, I've felt that the complaints that you occasionally run into out there where folks or conservative law professors are saying, oh, we're, we need more intellectual diversity programs, which we've written about on the site and the problems that I have with that sort of language, which I feel is kind of hijacking actual diversity concerns with uh, basically that they want more friends in the in the break room. But <laughs> but but you're right about I wanted to focus on how if people want uh, conservative folks on campus, they're there and they are not shy. In my experience, the more conservative the law professor, the more vocal they make sure they are that you know that they're there. So uh, when you made that point, it really resonated. I'm like, you always could tell who those people were. Yeah. And in my experience, I, I would always, when I was in school, I, I kind of, I, to the extent that I had choice, which you have less in law school than you do in college, but you still have some in law school. I sought out the conservative professors. I tried to take their seminars and I tried to take their their groups because that's that's who I'm fighting against, right? Like I need, you know, it, the whole point to me of, of getting an education, right, is to improving your own, knowledge base in your own arguments. And like, I can't sharpen my arguments unless I'm hacking at the grindstone. I think that's right. And, you know, I, I tell students that as well. I mean, I, I tell I tell the liberal students who are clamoring for a safe space that law school is inherently a space where there are going to be issues that will make you uncomfortable. Like we can't run from that discomfort. I and mean, if you're going to have the kind of effect that you, an impact that you want to have, you really do have to grapple with the ideas and the issues that scare you. The safe space thing has been interesting, and we've written about it a bit here. So I've always felt, and since you're actually on a campus, maybe I'm wrong, I've always felt that like the safe space discussion as it plays out in the media is that all these students want to, you know, never talk about any topics and just pretend things don't exist and have unicorns. And I, I feel like that's, at least from my sense, I don't think that's what people are saying. I think what they're trying to say is that there are a million and one ways you can teach certain concepts. And when professors are insensitive to the idea that like, because sometimes I feel like, at least certainly like when I was in law school, you can choose, you know, graphic details for your fact patterns that you're really just kind of being gratuitous. And I feel as though the safe space people were more saying like, you know, you can teach this concept a million and one ways. Why do you insist on being gratuitous? Which I think is different, but maybe maybe I'm wrong and maybe it is the everybody doesn't want to talk about it. But that's what I've always kind of sensed just from conversations with younger people. For those playing along at home, that was Joe Patrice talking about the N-word without saying it. No, good I, job, I, Joe. Oh, you know, it's interesting. I wasn't. But that's fascinating. And that is a good point because there are some instances that we've written about like that. But I was actually in my head what I was thinking about 
were the now somewhat embattled professor who I won't name, who's talked a lot about how students don't want to talk about rape and crim law anymore. And I'm like, well, is it that they don't want to talk about that or that they don't want your fact pattern to be just the most lurid attempt at an SVU spec script? I think it's that. I mean, I think there's, again, a range. I mean, I, I don't think we ought to reduce all student thinking on this question to a single perspective. I think, you know, they're actually quite varied in how they think about it. And I think there are a number of students who are quite thoughtful about this who, you know, just object to what might be seen as a gratuitous um, and uh, gratuitously triggering kind of explication of an issue. And, you know, I can understand that. And, and I think that's that's fair. There are lots of different ways that we can present material and have the same pedagogical effect. But I also think that there are some students who object to the voicing of certain ideas, not because they object to the idea in principle, but because they may suspect that there's some sort of underlying um, other reason for the claim or the issue. Like, so, for example, I, I've spoken about this on in other settings, but you know, one year when I taught constitutional law at Berkeley and we were doing affirmative action, a student who was a white student raised a question about affirmative action and asked, you know, basically like whether or not affirmative action didn't. Um, just sort of detract from the achievements of minority students? Like, does it always sort of cast a pall on what other students are doing about what minority students are doing? And I, you know, let him make, like, make this statement. And I engaged it because I thought it was an interesting counterpoint to what we had been talking about. And I thought it usefully ventilated some aspects of the court's jurisprudence, namely Justice Thomas's um, dissents from the affirmative action cases. And then later in office hours, I had a student who came forward and was really incensed and angry with me for giving that student a platform to say this. And I I think I was taken aback by both the vehemence of her objection and um, her unwillingness to sort of to hear his side of it. And, you know, as we talked about it, it became clear to me one of the reasons she objected and it became clear quite quickly was that to her... His objection was rooted in some sense that she didn't belong there, that she wasn't good enough to be there. And that was really what was animating his comment. And it wasn't made in a spirit of sort of generous and general inquiry, but rather as a way to discredit African-American students. And so I can understand that. And I can understand sort of feeling that way and that students may have very different views about what a statement might mean or what's animating a statement and, you know, that's the difficulty of a diverse and pluralistic classroom these days. Absolutely. I'm so glad you made that point. Uh, certainly from my, my experience um, in school, the, the most hurtful and the dumbest comments never came from the professors. It was always, you know, it was always from a fellow classmate who would, I guess, under the spirit of engaging with the topic or with the issue, would say just dumb ass, hurtful crap and then kind of you know and then to me that's where like professorial skill comes in because like a good professor is going to kind of turn that around and sufficiently challenged that student and and kind of for lack of a better phrase make it all okay whereas a, a less good professor will kind of just like let some of this crap lie and then I would always feel, you know, as, as one of uh, all my life, I've been one of the you know only African-American students in any classroom I've been in. 
And then I, I would feel like I then had more pressure to respond to that student or directly in class, in public, or later on after class, just to not let that statement kind of hang out there, which was never fun for me because I usually hadn't done the reading. So, you know, I'm always <laughs> yeah, I, coming off the pace. I, I really, my, so my colleague at Berkeley, Russell Robinson, has this terrific term called perceptual segregation. And, and, and it just sort of stands for this idea that different people may perceive different things about the same statement or the same event. And even within the same racial group, like I was the same, the student was also black and I am black. And I did not perceive the other students' comments to be animated by a sense of black inferiority. Um, But the student did. And, you know, I think that sort of relates to just sort of the different positions we were in in the classroom. But I think that's a really important thing. I think students are coming to the classroom with really different views, really different perspectives, and really different experiences. And they may perceive the statements of their colleagues, of the professor, in wildly different ways. Yeah, living with people is hard. Um, Professor Murray, thank you so much for joining us this week. I really wanted to get you on. I really want to, to talk about campuses right now. A lot of our um, listeners are um, students, so hopefully this discussion was helpful for them. And hopefully it was helpful for people who haven't gone to law school yet, knowing the, uh, to hear a little bit about what you could be getting yourself into. So, Ellie, can I make one last point? Sure. So, when the Trump administration, um, I guess, came to power at the election of November, in November 2016, um, one of my former students um, from Berkeley was working at Morrison Enforcer. So, this sort of goes back to your point about people going to big law. And she was so incensed by what she saw and about, you know, the direction the country was going in. She quit her job at Morrison and Forrester. And with some other like-minded friends, they founded a group called Sister District Project that focused on statewide legislative races. And her whole point was, if we are going to change the political tenor of this country, change the policy, we actually have to focus on turning state legislatures to more progressive directions. And so she quit her job, started this organization, and they immediately began work trying to turn red legislatures blue. And I, I think it's such a great lesson for law students. Um, you know, you can use your law degree in ways that actually affect the change that you are concerned with. You can use the training that you've been given to actually do something on the ground. And you can leave the comfort of your law firm perch in order to do that too. So none of this is finite. None of this is inevitable. And there's definitely work for young, active, progressive-minded people to get involved in. You've made me feel so shamed about my excitement (laughs) over my corporate coffee maker. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But I'm going to Indiana, so it's all all cool. Yeah, that'll make up for the Yeah, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. I'm there. (laughs) Okay. Well, great. Thank you for joining us. And thank you, all the listeners, for joining us this week. If you aren't already subscribed, you should be. That way you get all of these episodes when they first appear. You should write reviews of all of these shows, not just give it stars, of which you should give five, but also write reviews and tell people about it. That helps us a lot more in moving up the algorithm of your podcast service as a when people type in, hey, law, does this show show up that depends on you and the re- reviews. Also, you should read Above the Law. Obviously, you should follow us on Twitter. He's at L-E-N-Y-C. I'm at Joseph Patrice. We also have a couple of podcasts uh, unrelated uh, here from Above the Law. We have a book of business podcast about laterals. We have The Jabot, which talks about 
social justice issues. We've got the Legal Talk Network's whole range of shows, especially on the road, which I occasionally host. So keep an eye out for whenever I do those. And uh, with all of that, I think we're done. So thanks, everybody. And we'll talk uh, later. Peace. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also find us at AboveTheLaw.com, ATLRedline.com, iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.